1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, what is it, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blinn producing, Dave King engineering in the Portland area, Pedro Bartez producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we're going to talk with Rachel Sheffield. She's a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Welfare and Family Policy. We'll talk about the shift in marital trends reflected in Valentine's Day celebrations. And we'll talk with Ryan Walker, Executive Vice President of Heritage Action on the House impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and the need for the Senate to act. We'll... Uh, some questions as to whether or not this was uh, constitutional or political, or perhaps a combination of the two. Well, Kansas City police said one person is dead and 22 others injured by gunfire after a shooting near the Chiefs Super Bowl victory rally in Union Station on Wednesday. Well, during a press conference uh, this evening, Kansas City Police Chief Stacey Graves said three people were detained. The shooting happened at around 2 p.m. local time near the Union Station parking garage as soon as the rally concluded. The mayor there, Mayor Quentin Lucas, added that all Chiefs players were safe and accounted for. The celebration was marred by the shooting. This is absolute tragedy. Well, President Biden has been briefed on the shooting and will continue to receive updates. The White House said the attorney general was also briefed on the shooting. The FBI also had a presence at the parade and is providing assistance to the Kansas City Police Department. Cade uh, Collins, who was in attendance at the parade with uh, uh, his dad, described the whole ordeal. We heard 10 to 12 gunshots. Uh, But we thought they were fireworks, so we didn't really panic at first or get too worked up. But then everyone started screaming and took off running. Once the crowd moved out of the way, I could see three people with gunshot wounds on the ground. I saw one girl with a gunshot wound to her leg, a second woman who was shot and had uh, something tied around her leg to make uh, a tourniquet, and her leg was covered in blood. Collins said that he saw people helping the wounded. There was a guy right by her, and he was in a lot worse shape. But again, there was one casualty, and apparently among the, um, the dead and wounded were children, a number of children as well. Meanwhile, the United States has intelligence of a national and international security threat related to Russian nuclear capabilities in space, which could threaten satellites, including potentially knocking out U.S. military communications and reconnaissance. It has been learned. Sources say that the Russian capability has not yet been deployed. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner today, this morning, in fact, first warned of a serious national security threat and called on the president to declassify it. The House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat, he said. I'm requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat, end quote. The notice sent to congressional members on Wednesday pointed to an urgent matter with regard to a destabilizing foreign military capability that should be known by all congressional policymakers. Uh, The deliberations about declassifying the intelligence relate to interests in protecting intelligence sources and methods. Well, a separate source said that the threat is uh, concerning Russian capability, noting that the potential seriousness of the threat is grave, but the threat is not immediate in nature. Not particularly consoling. House Speaker Mike Johnson later attempted to quell any panic caused by the statement by explaining that last month he sent a letter to the White House requesting a meeting with the president to discuss a serious national security issue that is classified. In response to that letter, a meeting is now scheduled tomorrow on this matter here at the Capitol with the gang of four and with the president's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan. Johnson said, I will press the administration to take appropriate action and everybody can be comforted by that, end quote. Well, Johnson said that he saw Chairman Turner's statement on the issue and I want to assure the American people there's no need for public alarm. We are going to work together to address this matter as we do all sensitive matters that are classified. And beyond that, I'm not at liberty to, to disclose classified information and really can't say much about that, but we just want to assure everyone Uh, Steady hands are at the wheel. We're working on it. There's no need to be for alarm, rather. Meanwhile, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia, and Vice Chairman Marco Rubio, the Republican from Florida, said their uh, committee has intelligence in questions. Uh, and has been rigorously tracking the issue from the start. We continue to take this matter seriously and are discussing an appropriate response with the administration. In the meantime, we must be cautious about potentially disclosing sources and methods that may be a uh, key to preserving a range of options for U.S. actions. End quote." The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Wednesday at the White House press briefing said that he was surprised by Turner's statement, given that earlier in the week he reached out to members of Congress to offer himself to come to Capitol Hill to give a personal briefing on the matter. That briefing will take place tomorrow. I'm a bit surprised that Congressman Turner came out publicly today in advance of that meeting on the books for me to go sit with him alongside our intelligence and defense professionals tomorrow. That's his choice to do that, end quote. All I want to tell you is that I'm focused on... Uh, going to see him, sit with him, as well as the other House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow, and I'm uh, not in a position to say anything further. He added, you definitely are not going to find an unwillingness to do that uh, when it's in our national security interests to do so. Well, Sullivan uh, went on to say that the administration has prioritized the issue of sources and methods, and ultimately these are decisions for the president to make. It's highly unusual, in fact, for the national security advisor uh, to... Meet in this way, indicating the seriousness of whatever the threat may be, whether it be from Russia or elsewhere. Well, NATO announced more members have met the two percent defense spending requirement, but almost half of the members have still failed to meet the minimum. Russia reportedly uh, looks to increase or as Russia looks to increase its presence along the alliance's borders. In 2024, NATO allies in Europe will invest a combined total of three hundred and eighty billion U.S. dollars in defense. For the first time, this amounts to two percent of their uh, combined GDP. NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg said at a meeting of the defense ministers, we are making real progress, he insisted. European allies are spending more. However, some allies still have a ways to go because we agreed at the um, Uh, Vilnius um, summit that all allies should invest 2% and that 2% is a minimum. Collective spending will hit 2% in 2024, according to Stoltenberg, rising from 1.56% spent in 2019 and 1.85% in 2023. Poland spends the most with 3.9% of GDP spent on defense, followed by the United States with 3.49% and Greece at 3.01%. Stoltenberg credited Russia's invasion of Ukraine for spurring the rapid increase over the past two years and the insistence on the part of Donald Trump, while president, that they must pay their fair share. And spending could see another bump after Estonia claimed that Moscow is preparing for confrontation with West within the next decade, starting with a buildup along the borders of NATO members. Last week, Denmark warned that an attack could occur within the next three to five years. Russia has chosen a path which is a long-term confrontation, and the Kremlin is probably anticipating a possible conflict with NATO, and NATO must be prepared. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at some of the day's news, but also anticipate a conversation, a reflection on how we relate to one another on this Valentine's Day, and we'll talk with Ryan Walker about the impeachment of Alejandro Marocas and what happens next. Patty Murray will play a significant role in what happens in the Senate. We'll talk about it later in the program.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. FBI director Christopher Ray made an announced trip, an unannounced trip I should say, to Israel where he sat in on intelligence meetings before speaking uh, to the press. His visit was his first time on the ground in Israel. Since the October 7th Hamas attack, the director met with his counterpart in Israeli Shin Bet, the intelligence agency, and others, and he spoke before aborting a plane to leave the country for Germany for the Munich security conference where he'll speak tomorrow. We've seen a, uh, a rogue's gallery of foreign terrorist organizations both express support and praise for the Hamas attacks and threaten to attack U.S. interests at home and abroad, Ray said. We're working with all our partners to confront the elevated threat picture which includes, I should add, the threats posed by Iran and Hezbollah, both in terms of the Hamas attacks on October 7th and more broadly. We have learned a lot, Ray added, of the information gathered by the FBI in the wake of October 7th. The information exchange between our two countries has been terrific as well, as with a number of other close allies who are all collaborating out of a shared commitment to combat the scourge of terrorism. He also spoke about the FBI's role in protecting Americans in Israel and Gaza. By the way, there are still some Americans held hostage by Hamas In Gaza, the FBI, he went on to say, has been working side by side, really around the clock to aid in investigative and recovery efforts to provide support and services to U.S. victims of the attack and their families and to identify and disrupt additional threats that we're seeing emanating from the conflict. He said he felt it was important to travel to meet with Israeli law enforcement and intelligence partners on Israeli soil to show our unwavering support and commitment to those partners in the wake of the horrific events. Of that day, the second Holocaust, if you will, of Israel. Some of our FBI folks here in Israel have literally not taken a day off since October 7th, and I'm proud of the incredible support the team has provided uh, to our partners during this dark time. The FBI's partnership with our Israeli counterparts is longstanding, close, and robust, he said. Whenever we meet and talk, which we do all the time. These are deeply substantive conversations across a whole range of common threats between countries with shared values and shared commitment to the rule of law. And he went on from there. Well, for many Christians worldwide, the week leading up to Easter is a time of fasting, solemn contemplation, and abstaining from certain luxuries and foods. Well, today marks the beginning of Lent, a season of the liturgical calendar representing a 40-day period plus Sundays that are not counted. Well, there are many traditions and customs associated with Lent, some like Ash Wednesday today. Um, requires ash, an ashen cross on the forehead. Catholics abstaining from eating meat on Fridays are fairly well known, but there are other things I thought I'd just mention. I saw a um, press conference earlier in the day, and the person speaking had a rather large circle, it appeared, on his forehead. It looked like a gunshot wound. On closer inspection, I could see it was supposed to be a cross, but it was difficult to tell. It wasn't uh, put there very carefully. So it took me a minute to remember, oh, it's Ash Wednesday. Well, Ash Wednesday worship involves church services. Ashes are placed on the in the shape of a cross on worshippers' foreheads. The practice is meant to symbolize mortality and penance. The use of ashes for these purposes has long history in Judeo-Christian circles, as seen in the Old Testament, when various figures would wear sackcloth and put ashes on their heads as a solemn call to repentance. And the ashes oftentimes are from the Uh, Branches that were used uh, from the Easter season uh, and they are burnt and those ashes are placed on the forehead. This act symbolizes our mortality as well as our need for ongoing repentance. It is a reminder that this life is short and merely a foreshadowing of what shall become through the through the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, why do people give things up for Lent? Well, a common way Christian, uh, Christians observe Lent is to give up something that they like during the season. Popular options are soda, candy, television, drinking, smoking, things that you enjoy but aren't necessary. The practice has scriptural basis in Luke 9.23 for those who practice, which reads, Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Well, so essentially is about self-denial, carrying out uh, our cross and following Jesus. Those who practice say it's something that's done in a, a, a prayerful way and so that they can wholly renew themselves in Christ. Also the word Alleluia is uh, not allowed during Lent. Uh, this was something of a surprise to me. It's customary for churches observing Lent to refrain from having songs featuring the Hebrew fa- phrase hallelujah translated praise the Lord during Lent. And you might wonder why on earth would that be the case? Well, according to the evangelical Lutheran church in America, um, their paper on worship, the custom of avoiding the word either in song or in statements goes back to the fifth century because of the penitential character of the season of Lent in the Western church singing or saying the word has historically been suspended during Lent's 40 days. Uh, this period of individual and congregational reflection on the quality of our baptismal faith and life suggests that the joyful nature of Alleluia is more appropriately reserved for our Easter celebrations when it is given full and jubilant voice, so it is simply suspended for a season. Then there's the uh, uh, the Latere uh, Sunday. I'm not sure how that should be pronounced, but on the fourth Sunday of Lent, which is in the middle of the liturgical season, some churches observe a special date, um, deriving its name from uh, a place in Jerusalem or rejoice, O Jerusalem. It's known for being a lighter worship service with a more upbeat and celebratory tone than other Lenten seasons season Sundays. It's closer to uh, the uh, Easter celebration as well. And then uh, again, last year's Palm Sunday branches are often used uh, for the ashes. The ashes for Ash Wednesday are traditionally taken from palm branches that were used for the previous year's Palm Sunday, stressing the theme of mortality. That the Linton service holds the United Methodist book of worship notes that in addition to the palm branches from last year, the burned items for the ashes can also include a paper card with sins written on them. It's symbolic. It is traditional to save the palm branches from the previous Palm Sunday service to burn to produce ashes for this service. Sometimes a small card or piece of paper is distributed on which each person writes a sin or hurtful or unjust characteristic that is also burned for those ashes that represent penitence. So today is Ash Wednesday. It's also Valentine's Day. On this day in history, February 14th, 270 A.D., Valentine was beaten and beheaded for defying the emperor's marriage ban. So happy Valentine's Day. We are commemorating the beheading of St. Valentine. Well, third century Roman priest Valentinius, Valentinius or something very like that, was brutally beaten and beheaded after marrying couples in defiance of Emperor Claudius II's ban on the sacrament of marriage on this day in history, February 14th, 270 A.D. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death, according to the historians. Valentine was arrested and dragged before the prefect of Rome, who condemned him to be beaten to death with clubs and to have his head cut off. The sentence was carried out on the February 14th on or about the year 270. Well, the execution of the uh, the priest committed a, uh, to betrothal is celebrated around the world as St. Valentine's Day. The celebration of romance has been secularized in recent decades as Valentine's Day. The holiday's association with roses and romance stands in sharp contrast, obviously, to St. Valentine's grisly execution or the contemporary fixation uh, with the saint's dismembered body parts. Cathedrals um, in as many as five different countries claim to house various remains of St. Valentine that can now be visited. Well, that tale of his martyrdom for uniting lovers in defiance of the emperor is one of several popular versions of the original St. Valentine's Day, each rooted in truth, but shrouded by two millennia of poorly recorded history. There are, for example, two different martyred St. Valentines uh, venerated on February 14th. The holiday may be a a blend of the two tales of martyrdom. But again, there's a thread of truth. And although not much of St. Valentine's life is reliably known and whether or not the stories involve two different saints by the same name is also not officially decided. It's highly agreed that St. Valentine was martyred and then buried in the uh, via uh, Flaminia of the, um, uh, to the North of Rome. At least one source cites a third St. Valentine on the same era, Uh, martyred in Africa. The exact date of his execution is unknown, but it is traditionally celebrated on the 14th as well. So again, happy Valentine's Day, I I guess. Well, the likely trial of the U.S. Senate to consider the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will push Washington Senator Patty Murray into the spotlight. Murray, a Democrat and the president uh, pro tempore of the Senate, preside over the trial. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said in a prepared statement on Tuesday, House Republicans voted on Tuesday to impeach Mayorkas, the first ever impeachment of a sitting cabinet member. One previous cabinet member, Secretary of War William Belknap, was uh, unanimously impeached in 1876, but had already resigned so there was no conviction, no trial and conviction in the Senate. Three Republicans joined every Democrat in imposing uh, rather opposing that impeachment. The articles... um, of impeachment next head to the Senate, which is on recess for two weeks. When the Senate returns, designated House members will serve as impeachment managers and present the articles of impeachment to senators who will be sworn in as jurors. As presiding officer, her office um, uh, said that Murray would be responsible for administering an oath to all senators to do impartial justice. The rest of her role depends greatly on how the Senate decides to proceed. Uh, Even as presiding officer, she would still vote in any full Senate vote, according to her office. As the Senate determines how to proceed, I will consult with the parliamentarian and Senate president, Murray said in a prepared statement. She said that she would um, have more to say when the process is concluded, but faulted Republicans for devoting time to impeachment, as did the uh, Democrats in the last administration. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Rachel Sheffield. She'll take a look at relationships in the 21st century on this Valentine's Day. And we'll talk with Ryan Walker, executive vice president of Heritage Action on the House impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and the need for the Senate to act. What are the options? What's likely to happen? That's coming up in the second hour. Well, a legal effort to remove former President Trump from the primary ballot in New York is riddled with issues and likely to fail even before you get to the 14th Amendment uh, argument. An election attorney from the Empire State said the New York's Board of Elections certified the ballot last week with Trump's name ahead of the state's Republican primary in April. But Democratic State Senator Brad Holliman um, he filed a petition with the state Supreme Court the same day, claiming Trump was ineligible. The uh, move to certify the ballot followed a bevy of Democrats in the state writing letters to, to the BOE last year, urging commissioners uh, to bar Trump from the ballot, arguing he sparked an insurrection when supporters breached the U.S. Capitol. Well, the lawsuit this month, however, would likely fail due to a handful of procedural issues and not the uh, the crux of the issue. According to New York Republican election attorney Joe Burns, number one, in order to... To get into court, these individuals would have to be qualified objectors. And while they sent letters to the state board of elections demanding that Trump be kept off the ballot, that's not a proper objection under New York state law. So right off the bat, they have a bit of a problem with standing as objectors. That's number one. He previously explained that standing is generally limited to individuals who filed objections for opposing candidates, and he found it hard to believe that any of Trump's rivals would go to court to take him off the ballot, adding that any potential objector would have to be a party member. Secondly, Burns explained there was only a 10-day window beginning when Trump filed with the Board of Elections to launch a lawsuit aimed to keep him off the ballot. Uh, You have a very narrow window to file a lawsuit to exclude somebody from the ballot, and it's not measured from the decision of the Board of Elections. It's measured from when the candidate files their petition in most cases or certificate, uh, which is uh, what Trump did, he said. Trump filed in December. The shortest statutes of limitations and all of New York's laws are found in election law. From the filing of the cert certificate, they had only 10 days to commence the lawsuit. I think that's another problem that they have. And finally, Burns says that voters in the New York Republican presidential primary are not casting ballots for one specific candidate. Instead, they're voting to bind the delegates at the convention to vote for one of the candidate candidates one candidate or the other. So all of these issues with qualifications, the 14th Amendment in many respects, uh, may be um, that it's... Um An understatement, they just flat out inapplicable because the 14th Amendment issues are about holding office, an individual holding office. What's happening here at the presidential primary is simply binding delegates. When asked why Democrats are not following established procedures for the lawsuit, Burns was left scratching his head. But in New York, it appears for procedural reasons and again, not on the merits. It may not be possible to keep his name off of the ballot there. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is deliberating whether or not his name will appear on the Colorado ballot that may render other states contemplating or having already decided to remove his name from their ballots uh, moot. President Biden's first term in office has been marked by several foreign policy challenges, with some experts giving the president low marks as he tries uh, to seek a second term in November. From the catastrophic surrender in Afghanistan to the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine to the savage Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, President Biden's foreign policy has consisted of unanticipated disasters to which his administration has responded ineptly. That's a quote from Victoria Coates, the vice president of national security and foreign policy at the Heritage Foundation. The comments come as the president continued to confront several complex global challenges, including ongoing wars in Ukraine and Gaza, continuing attacks of U.S. troops by Iranian proxies and the growing threat of China. Given the volume of challenges faced by the president in his first term, some experts have allotted his handling of foreign policy challenges, especially when compared Uh, to his most likely challenger in this year's election, former President Trump. Trump's encouragements to Putin to an attempt to blackmail Ukrainian President Zelensky by withholding weapons from Ukraine for which he was impeached by the House of Representatives more than anything Biden did led to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's what David Toferi, a foreign policy analyst who served as a foreign policy advisor to the Obama campaign, said, uh, last week. Now the front line for protecting democracy and the rule of law runs through eastern and southern Ukraine. Well, that front line was solidified by solid anticipation of the looming threat by Biden, Teferi um, argued, noting that the president began readying Ukraine for a potential invasion months in advance. Uh, this gave Ukraine and its allies time to pr- time to prepare for the invasion, which proved crucial in Ukraine's early success in defeating Kiev, or uh, rather defending Kiev, as well as Uh, Most of the, the territory that Russia thought it would be able to occupy. But not everyone is sold on Biden's handling of the war in Ukraine, especially as the war drags on and the Ukrainian resistance shows potential signs of faltering. Biden never authorized a sufficient amount of weaponry to Ukraine to win, opting for virtue signaling instead, or in his words, simply doing something. Rebecca Kofler A strategic military intelligence analyst, former senior official of the Defense Intelligence Agency and author of Putin's playbook, uh, said, according to Koffler, the administration has lacked a clear strategy to combat Russian aggression from the start, instead opting to throw billions of dollars of weaponry to Ukraine and... A talk smack about Putin. Weaponry and technology don't win wars. We learned it in Afghanistan and many other places. Putin is not afraid of words. He fears actions, Koffler said. Biden announced in the very beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that he will not authorize U.S. troop deployment into the theater to help Ukraine. It is insanity to give away a key deterrence element, end quote. we we'll reach for comment a White House National Security Council spokesperson pushed back against the idea that U.S. weapons aid uh, has been insufficient to keep Ukraine um, to help Ukraine, pointing to American aid as being instrumental to Ukraine's success in the Battle of Kyiv, where Ukrainian forces beat back Russia's initial invasion. The um, spokesperson also pointed to successes in the battle for other places and retaking of more than 50 percent of seized Russian territory by Ukrainian forces. Assuming Congress passes the president's national security supplemental request in 2024, we will enable Ukraine, he argued, to both continue to conduct offensive operations to retake its sovereign territory and to strengthen its defenses against Russian attacks. Well, Koffler also questioned the idea that Trump withheld weapons from Ukraine, noting that Trump was actually the first one who authorized lethal military assistance there. As part of his 2020 budget request to Congress, the former president did request $250 million in lethal aid for Ukraine that included javelin anti-tank weapons, according to a 2019 report from Defense News, a weapon that would eventually become critical in the early days of the fighting against better-equipped Russian forces. All told, Koffler argued that Biden's Russia policy has amounted to no more than virtue signaling, while Trump's policies were based on real actions that sought to deter Putin. Well, the question is whether or not the current administration will get the funding that they have requested, to what they believe will deter Russia and help help the country to defend itself. Well, you think America's um, tail between its legs departure from Afghanistan was bad? Something even worse is coming in the Pacific, albeit more quietly. U.S. defenses in the Asia Pacific Center on a defense line running from Japan to the Philippines to Taiwan and on to Borneo, the so-called First Island Chain. Well, Grant. Uh, Newsham writing for uh, Fox News says this, try defending against China along the first island chain without a secure rear area in Central Pacific. And suppose it's the Chinese in the rear. American control of the Central Pacific depends on three treaties known as compacts of free association with three nations, Palau, Federated States of Micronesia and Republic of Marshall Islands. These nations and their huge maritime territory comprise most of an east west corridor from Hawaii to the western edge of the Pacific that is essential for U.S. control and military operations in the in the region well the uh, compacts for uh, compacts of free association or CAFAs, cofas cofas Give the United States the legal authority to operate freely and to keep other nations' uh, militaries out. In other words, military access and control. As part of the agreements, the three nations receive financial and other support from the U.S. to include the right of citizens to reside and work in America. And one should never forget the uh, CAFA's state citizens serve in the U.S. military at higher per capita rates than almost all U.S. states. The CAFA agreements are up for renewal, and the agreements have passed the torturous dozen or so committees and now just need to be voted on and passed. Well, that's very much in doubt. One issue is $2.3 billion in offsets. That means that uh, to fund the CAFAs, $2.3 billion has to come out of the federal budget elsewhere. The $2.3 billion is over 20 years, so it averages out to about $40 million a year for each country. Yes, 40 million, a half hour of Medicaid fraud. We blew a trillion or two in Afghanistan, and we're complaining about 120 million a year. Everyone is blaming everyone else, but what is most important is it is in doubt that that funding will be made available so that we can, in, if called upon, uh, be able to defend that area in the Pacific. Time doesn't permit me to go into much greater detail. Perhaps we'll revisit that on another occasion but we do need to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show coming up in the second hour Rachel Sheffield. We'll talk about uh, the trend in relationships in the 21st century and we'll talk with Ryan Walker on the impeachment of uh, Alejandro Mayorkas and what the Senate will likely do next. Well, is TikTok a national security threat or not? If we listen to the president, the answer appears to be yes, very much so. And no, not at all. Well, we should explain. In November, the administration banned TikTok from being used on all federal government devices due to national security concerns. So the answer is yes, all of them. But on Super Bowl Sunday, in the wake of his um, disastrous Thursday night presser, the president's deeply desperate re-election campaign team announced the world to the world that it's now embracing the communist Chinese spyware platform and powerfully a powerful propaganda tool ostensibly to connect with young people, especially the Gen Z crowd, which has increasingly come to favor Donald Trump. Hey, by the way, we just joined TikTok, Team Biden announced on X. Uh, they then followed up that um, Uh, Outrageous admission with a pathetic uh, uh, pander, a pre-Super Bowl pop quiz to make Biden sound young and cool rather than old and adult. Well, in the TikTok spot, Biden is asked whether he was deviously plotting to rig the season so the Chiefs would make the Super Bowl or if there's uh, uh, there's just being a good football team to which Biden uh, robotically responded. "Um, I'd get in trouble if I told you. Then an image of Dark Brandon, a satirical and supposedly hip meme of a decrepit Biden with laser beams shooting out of his eyes, flashes on the screen. Oh, dear. Well, Joe Biden is so desperate to pander to young voters. uh, Florida Republican Congressman Mike Walls, a political opponent, said he's willing to give away his campaign data to communist China. Thus, it's do as I say, not as I do, for he and his reelection campaign which uh, knows full well that their guys' competency numbers compared to Trump have nosedived among registered voters from 47% in June of 2020 to, 30, to just 32% today, according to the latest in a string of disastrous polls. This one from normally friendly NBC News. Outgoing Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher, a retired Marine Corps intelligence officer who chairs the Select Committee on China, offered a scathing indictment of the... Uh, Contradictory decision. Every single national security official under this administration, from the director of national intelligence to the CIA director, to the DIA director, to the head of Cyber Command, has warned that TikTok is a national security threat. The head of the FBI, Chris Ray, just testified before my committee and said that. The parent company that owns TikTok is beholden to the Chinese government and therefore is a very significant threat. So here you have Biden's handpicked advisors telling him that this is effectively a CCC pool or weapon, a tool, and yet he's ignored that information, or at least his campaign staff has. Why? To court the voters of 18 uh, year olds. To get progressives in a campaign season, it's not a serious move. It's not a serious uh, leadership effort. It's not a move of a serious country. I urge the president's Gen Z TikTok adult campaign staffers to reverse course in the interest of national security. Ouch. Well, data show that winds of political change are blowing among black voters in volatile times like now. Predictions can be made and only the greatest uh, with only the greatest caution. However, it seems clear that something is going on and black voters are breaking with past voting patterns. The New York Times reported last November that per its uh, polling with uh, Siena College, 22 percent of black voters in six key battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin indicated they would support Republican Donald Trump. In 2020, Trump gained ground with blacks, picking up 12 percent of the black vote, up from 8 percent in 2016. But any suggestion that any Republican candidate might pick up 20 plus percent of the black vote is revolutionary. The last time the black vote went beyond the uh, teens for a Republican was 1960, when Richard Nixon got 32 percent of the black vote in a close election he lost to John Kennedy. The next election was 64 uh, for, um, it was about the civil rights movement for, for blacks. The Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater, opposed passage of the Civil Rights Act and got 4% of the black vote. Republicans have not recovered since. Nixon returned and won the presidency in 68 and 72. However, blacks support, black supported him at a fraction of what he received in 1960. Uh, getting 10 percent of the black vote in 68 and 13 percent in 72. In a USA Today Suffolk University poll reported in January, only 63 percent of black voters indicated support for President Biden, 63 percent, compared to 87 percent who voted for him in 2020. The USA Today Suffolk University poll shows a less compelling picture of blacks moving toward Trump. That poll shows... 12 percent support for Trump, exactly where it was in 2020. However, the poll shows black sentiment moving away from Democrats with almost 20 percent of black voters, indicating they would support a third party candidate. Now we have new data from Gallup reporting that the Democratic Party's uh, wide lead over Republicans and black Americans party preferences has shrunk by nearly 20 points. Over the past three years, among black Americans surveyed, 66 percent said that they would identify as Democrat, lean Democrat, and 19 percent Republican, lean Republican for a differential of 47 points. A little over three years ago in 2020, in the same survey, 77 percent of black Americans identified as Democrat, lean Democrat, compared to 11 percent. Identifying as Republican lean Republican for a difference, a differential of 66 points. In just three years, the differential between black support for Democrats and for Republicans has shrunk 19 points. Overall, the 47 point differential in this latest survey is the smallest since Gallup first started doing the survey in 99, when the differential was 72 points. Well, with recent elections decided by tiny margins in battleground states, a fundamental change in voting behavior by one key demographic can be a game changer. The implications over the long haul are profound given the demographic changes taking place with a percentage of white vote, which accounts for the majority of Republican votes shrinking in each election. In 2020, whites accounted for 67 percent of the vote. This compared to 1980 when whites uh, were 88 percent. Per the Census Bureau, the percentage of the U.S. population that is white will be down by rather down to 45 percent by 2060. So any movement of blacks and Hispanics away from Democrats means a lot. Why is this apparent movement of blacks from Democrats happening? Well, one hypothesis um, that was proposed from The New York Times Siena College poll, that poll shows that relative to whites, blacks care more about economic issues than social issues. Sixty five percent of blacks say economic issues are most important compared to 53 percent of whites. Twenty one percent of blacks say social issues are most important compared to 33 percent of whites. Perhaps we are entering new times when fewer blacks look to government for social justice and more want economic growth and opportunity. And that means Republican. So it's a rather interesting uh, potential shift. We'll see what the actual ballots say when the uh, election actually arrives. In other news, um, former Democrat Representative Tom Susie won a closely watched special election for a vacant House seat once held by former Republican Representative George Santos, who was expelled from the chamber in December. The Associated Press projected he would defeat the Republican uh, county lawmaker Mazie Phillip to win back his old job with a call coming Tuesday night, just over an hour after polls had closed. With the GOP hanging on to a razor thin majority in the House, National Republicans and Democrats poured big bucks into the race in suburban New York City, where immigration and border security, crime and abortion were the top issues and where the election was seen as a bellwether ahead of the all but certain November White House rematch between President Biden and former President Trump. There's so much more that could be said, but time doesn't permit. President Biden explicitly told reporters on Tuesday he was not taking questions during remarks he made at the White House following last week's explosive press conference. I'm not going to be taking any questions, but I'll be taking questions tomorrow or the next day. That would be today or tomorrow, he said as he approached the podium. But I don't want anything to get in the way of this statement. He uh, stuck to the script for roughly eight minutes, speaking about the Senate passing the $95 billion foreign aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan and urging House Republicans to pass the bill. He railed against those opposing the bill, saying they're playing into Putin's hands. He also attacked former President Trump for his recent comments about not protecting NATO allies who don't uh, uh, support the uh, alliance. Financially, Biden typically ends his speeches with may God protect our troops. This time, he said, God bless you all. May God protect our speaker. Now, was he referring to Johnson? It's not known. And I promise I'll be back and answer questions later. Thank you. He went on to say well, Biden added uh, before walking away, the president's refusal to take questions comes just days after he lashed out at several reporters following the release of special counsel. Her's report. That fueled more questions about his mental acuity at the last minute primetime White House press conference Thursday evening. He took questions from reporters with many exchanges, turning combative in the same press conference. The president made headlines for mistakenly mixing up uh, Egypt's president for Mexico's when discussing the Israel Gaza war. These revelations, in addition to his recent slew of gaffes, continue to fuel concerns among voters that 81 year old Biden is too old to seek second term which polls have repeatedly shown and raises questions about whether or not the his uh, likely opponent would also be supported. He's in his 70s at present. All right. We're going to take a break. We've got news at the top of the hour. Stick around some uh, conversations coming up with two guests in the second hour.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, unless you've just emerged from a cave, you probably know that today is Valentine's Day. And according to my next guest, fewer Americans are planning to celebrate Valentine's Day in 2024 than in years past. But spending on Valentine's Day gifts for everyone from a significant other to one's cat has increased. So Russell Stover and Hallmark They don't have anything to worry about. But declining celebration of the day may portend other things. Well, Rachel Sheffield, she joins us to talk about it. She's a research fellow, welfare and family policy at the Center for Health and Welfare Policy at the uh, Heritage Foundation to talk about the shift in marital trends uh, reflected in Valentine's Day celebrations. Hey, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on the
2: show today. And happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, you too. Well, Valentine's Day celebration really is an option. It does perhaps give us a glimpse into where we stand as a culture with regard to how we are relating to one another in marriage or, for that matter, in serious relationships. Uh, This is also National Marriage Week uh, dedicated to promoting the benefits of marriage. So maybe we'll start there. What are the benefits of marriage that so many these days are missing out on?
3: Yeah, well, there's a, you know, there's, there's numerous benefits. So, uh, you know, what we see in the research is that uh, marriage is actually one of the greatest uh, sources of happiness for, well, yeah, for adults. Um, it's, it's just, it's one of the greatest predictors of, of happiness and well-being. So, um, you know, besides happiness that, uh, you know, married couples are, you know, have better health physically and emotionally, they have, uh, you know, higher incomes and, and accumulate more wealth. And then also, you know, it goes beyond just, uh, the couples, uh, children raised in married parent families do better on numerous outcomes. So uh, so yeah, there are there are numerous benefits of marriage. It really is uh, the foundation of a healthy society. And unfortunately, in too many communities, marriage has broken down. We've seen uh, you know a decline in marriage and, and an increase in family breakdown um, over the last several decades. Well, and you point out
2: in your article that the number of Americans who are married has dropped steadily for the past several decades, particularly among those in their 20s. There's a shift in philosophy about marriage, the timing of it, uh, and so on. You write that the share of younger Americans in committed relationships has also declined. If the And I've been married for 41 years. I wholeheartedly embrace what you've described as the benefits of marriage and the importance of supporting and promoting those benefits. But why have so few people decided that eh, marriage may not be for me or at least it may not be for me right now?
3: Yeah, well, I think there's been, uh, you know, a, a cultural change where we've basically said, you know, where it's basically taught that, you know, marriage is something that should be put off. Like, don't, don't, don't rush into marriage. Which, you know, there is wisdom in that. It's good to, you know, teen marriages, you know, are at much higher risk of divorce. So there is wisdom in preparing for marriage. But what our culture has said is basically, well, you know, yeah, you, you gotta, you you have to wait till you have. You know, a career established, a home, and that, and, and you know, and, and you're able to afford an expensive wedding. All of these uh, things that are, can be really hard to you know accomplish until you're a little later in heck. I mean, not everyone is even able to um, you know get there necessarily. But doing those, you know, we used to have a a culture that said, you know, marriage was kind of the cornerstone of adult life, that you built your life together as a couple. Um, But today it's more of an individualistic approach. And unfortunately, there's often a lot of pitfalls that can occur um, as people remain single longer that that can make it harder to uh, establish healthy marriages down the road.
2: You make the point that when it comes to marital satisfaction, men and women who marry in their early 20s report higher relationship satisfaction than those who marry uh, at age 25 or later, uh, where they are establishing uh, life together. They're reaching those milestones together. They're determining what those milestones will be when they establish and start a family. So that may be surprising to listeners as well. Uh, maybe not uh, several decades ago, but it's still true today that people who are ready for marriage and in their early 20s actually do well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that would come as a surprise to many people that, you know, those who are, you know, marrying, you know, in their in their early to mid 20s actually, you know, are, you know, are doing pretty are doing well. And so we shouldn't necessarily, you know, we shouldn't assume that uh, that that's, you know, a recipe for disaster. We shouldn't be you know pushing people to needlessly delay marriage or to. Um, you know, to, to delay seeking, seeking marriage um, when they're, you know, because, uh, you know, until they're, you know, well into adulthood, because there there are a lot of benefits from it. You know, we, we live in a society where often we hear about a loneliness epidemic. We hear mm-hmm. that people are feeling, you know, a greater sense of purposelessness. And if we were, uh, you know, if we could, you know, uh, establish a culture where we were encouraging more people to seek out marriage, uh, you know, and, and to... Uh, to move in that direction, I think that uh, a lot, a lot more people will be finding uh, meaning and and happiness um, in in that relationship.
2: Uh, one of the other things that we have discovered is that there is a reduced risk of engaging in risky behavior when there is an expectation that uh, I'm moving toward a wholesome, lifelong relationship with someone else in the future. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that uh, marriage or the anticipation of marriage has had on reducing risky behavior?
3: Yeah, there's uh, some interesting research uh, done where, you know, they looked at college students and they found that those who kind of had a a closer marital horizon, those who said that they expected to marry in their early 20s, they engaged in fewer risk behaviors such as, you know, substance use, or permissive sexual behavior uh, compared to their, you know, peers who saw marriage as some as, as something that would happen later on in their life. So those those who were looking at, you know, towards marriage more, you know, in a, in a more uh, immediate uh, in their more immediate future, acted in a way that was, you know, less less risky and, uh, yeah, um, just healthier behaviors. So that that's a pretty interesting finding, um, and also just uh, yeah, you know, as people remain single longer, they're more likely to have more sexual partners. And that is um, associated with, you know, poorer relationship and poorer marital stability down the road. So, um, you know, gearing people towards, um, you know, pursuing uh, dating with purpose, with marriage in mind can be, um, you know, a, a, better, a better pathway to helping people have, you know, better, better outcomes in their lives.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Again, quoting from your uh, article, you said you write that as marriage has plummeted, particularly in lower income and working class communities, the number of children born outside of marriage has soared with, of course, multiple negative implications. A lot of people are postponing childbearing, which puts um, a little pressure on those who marry late in life with the expectation that they're going to have a family, Uh, that that is a a stress that that many face as well. That event horizon narrows when you uh, postpone marriage.
3: Yeah, that's right. We've we've seen a, a significant decline in fertility rates and in childbearing, and yeah, and and that is uh, associated with the increased age at marriage, with the decline in marriage. Because uh, you know, as as time passes, it's harder to have children. So that's another benefit of you know pursuing marriage earlier. It, it, it's that way couples aren't you know they're not as on you know their back isn't against up against the wall if they you know for having children (laughs) Uh, Mm and they there's which yeah so and it makes it easier to have to have children so how can we foster benefits
2: yeah yeah how how can we foster a culture of marriage in which not only we encourage young people to prepare for and consider marriage but also where we equip them uh, to have strong healthy relationships that create healthy marriages and foster healthy children
3: Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, it's not enough to just say, hey, you should get married. We really need to have a culture where we're encouraging people and and, and teaching people how to develop healthy relationships and healthy marriages. And I I think that if uh, we have more institutions of society engaged in that, that we will uh, be better off. So, for example, uh, you know, if high schools had curriculums to help, uh, you know, help youth understand how to build healthy dating relationships and what a healthy marriage looks like. That would be helpful. There are states, some states that do this, um, you know, churches already do some churches already do engage in, you know, premarital and marital education, but we need more of that. Uh, we, you know, colleges and universities, uh, other community organizations, just we, we, uh, you know, and if we have more, uh, you know, media messages about healthy marriages and healthy relationships, that would also help foster this culture of marriage that uh, that we are uh, in, in desperate need of. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, Rachel, I appreciate your uh, your article, and I appreciate you spending your time with us here today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Again, Rachel Sheffield, she's a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation on the shift in marital trends reflected in this Valentine's Day season.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
2: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know by now, the House of Representatives voted on Tuesday to impeach Mayorkas. This was the second time around, and we've already talked about how that happened. And now moves on to the Senate. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is Ryan Walker. He's Heritage Action Executive Vice President to talk about the um, impeachment of Mayorkas, what happens in the Senate, and whether or not this was a good idea, or if history will look back on this as just a political ploy, as uh, the Democrats are saying. Saying. Hey, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me on. Uh,
2: it's been an interesting thing to watch the House uh, failing to Um, impeach Mayorkas once, then coming back this uh, Tuesday and actually impeaching him. We've talked here on the program about how that happened and why the second time was necessary, who was absent and all of that. But let me just ask you, uh, first of all, your impression of this impeachment, was it warranted? And uh, are the critics wrong in suggesting that this was just a political ploy? Were there grounds?
4: I think there absolutely were. We at the Heritage Foundation and Heritage Action firmly believe that. And we've written as much there are certainly legal arguments to be made that mayorkas has ignored the law willfully refused to implement the law and is ignoring his oath of office uh, and threatening the safety and security of the american people after all he's let in 10 million immigrants into the united states since president biden came into power so we firmly support house republicans going down this pathway and believe the Senate should take this up uh, in quick, quick order.
2: Now, among the Republicans who voted against the impeachment of Mayorkas, they acknowledge all of the offenses that were brought against him, but believe that this did not rise to the level of impeachment. Your thoughts on on whether or not that's a legitimate uh, objection to this action, even though holding him accountable, they thought was the right thing to do, perhaps by other means.
4: Yeah, listen, I think that Congress has the authority to do this. Impeachment it will all, has and will always be uh, somewhat political, and it's a determination of whether Congress, using their Article I authorities, believes they should hold this administration accountable in this manner. And I have heard the arguments from those who voted no. They believe that this will n- usher in an era of impeaching the opposing party's cabinet officials. And that may be the case that may end up uh, becoming true or ringing true. But in this instance, with this individual, I think the case is very compelling uh, that he has, again, willfully ignored the law and it has ignored the oath of office that he took when he was sworn in.
2: And before we move forward, I want to just mention one other objection, and that is that he was simply following orders of his commander in chief. And therefore, even though he's taken an oath himself to apply the law and to follow the Constitution, that he shouldn't be held accountable because his betters, in this case, the chief executive, is responsible for this failure. Is that a legitimate uh, argument to suggest that, well, he just did what he was told or failed to do what he was told not to do?
4: well i think that's it's an interesting thought and i think that you know president biden has the authority to fire secretary mayorkas uh at any point uh, he is uh, serves at the pleasure of the president and so if the president believes that he is acting out of the administration's wishes the president could in theory fire him uh, but what the secretary cannot do is ignore the law uh, ignore congressional direction on what he must and is required to do, uh, which he has simply ignored over the past three years. And so, again, uh, we do think that this is uh, uh, an adequate measure for the House to take.
2: Now, the president has finally acknowledged that there is a crisis, in quotes, at the southern border. He, however, has blame shifted and suggested it's Donald Trump's fault because he's influencing uh, uh, the representatives in in Washington. It's a political ploy. And he's also suggesting the Republicans are preventing the real legislative work that needs to be done to untie his hands to protect the southern border. Can you comment on that and uh, whether or not there's a way to hold the president accountable for what he has willfully and uh, deliberately failed to do to protect our southern border and to follow the law and the Constitution?
4: Yeah, I think it's a very important point that President Biden has authorities under his uh, current portfolio that he could utilize to substantially reduce, if not close, the southern border. There is a section of law 212F which would allow the president to do just that. What House Re- and Senate some Senate Republicans have have asserted is that legislation like HR 2 is necessary to require the president, mm-hmm. and to actually tie his hands uh, to, to uh, take action. And that is the reason that H.R. 2 is needed. What we saw from the Senate and this bipartisan negotiation would not have gone in, uh, in that direction whatsoever. In fact, it gave the president all of the authority in the world to waive all of the requirements in the bill, uh, which were weak to begin with.
2: One can only hope that legislatively, when they come together, the House and the Senate, and try to work out the differences, that they can come up with something. It's not very likely, it seems to me, but... Uh let's talk about what happens now in the Senate. This uh, impeachment now goes to the Senate. We understand that Patty Murray, the Democrat from the uh, state of Washington, will be the president pro tempore of the Senate and will preside over the trial. It'll be a couple of weeks because they're going to be on uh, recess. What are your thoughts about what's likely to happen in the Senate? I know that Heritage is encouraging them to do the right thing, which I would agree would be to impeach um the uh, the secretary, but what do you think um is likely to happen? under this uh, leadership and moving forward where you don't have a majority of uh, Republicans in the Senate.
4: Yeah, this is a great uh, segue to talk about the Senate's need to take this up and for the American people to hear the evidence that Republicans have uh, and the case to be made against Secretary Mayorkas in the setting in the Senate this should not be something that the Senate brings up and what's called tables the resolution or simply dismisses uh, the impeachment proceedings. This should be a public trial. It should be, uh, there should be cross-examination and opportunities for the American people to hear the case uh, for impeachment. So we're encouraging Republican senators to not go along with Majority Leader Schumer's uh, insistence on, on trying to simply dismiss these claims.
2: Uh, And are you optimistic?
4: You know, I I think it remains to be seen. Uh, We are activating and and working with our grassroots uh, uh, activists in the states to to raise this point with their their lawmakers and to urge senators, uh, especially on the Republican side, to not give in to Chuck Schumer's demands here. And instead, force the conversation so that the American people, again, can be informed.
2: I would like to see at least a public hearing where we can decide for ourselves whether or not this was merited. Now, in the Senate, uh, a two-thirds majority is required to convict Mayorkas, and even some Republicans have voiced their opposition to the push, so it's not likely. And we also know a simple majority of the Senate at any point can vote uh, to dismiss this impeachment charge at any time, so... Uh, While uh, I'd like to be hopeful, I'm not very optimistic, uh, but I, I do agree that these are so serious that it at least should merit a public hearing where the American people can decide for themselves. Is this simply a political ploy or is the what's happening at the southern border? Is he responsible? Should it be taken more seriously and perhaps press the president and his administration to do what they should have done from the very beginning?
4: That's absolutely right, and I think it's important for the American people to understand where their senators uh, uh talking about this and highlighting it for the American people. These folks, uh, when they come back to Washington, D.C., will have to take a vote on this. And we are urging everyone who is paying attention to this space uh, to hold these members accountable. They should vote to have the impeachment trial.
2: Now, in addition to that, as we're looking at the southern border, the House and the Senate are um, – have a great chasm between the two in terms of what they believe ought to happen at the border. Is there going to be a conference? And do you expect that there will be some resolution? Is there any potential movement on the Senate side toward H.R. 2 that might, in fact, put some teeth in efforts to protect and secure the southern border?
4: You know, it it, it is my hope. It continues to be my hope to our side, even those on the Democrat uh, side of the aisle. I think that this is Uh, widely accepted amongst the American people that it's a a crisis and that something needs to be done. Uh, Fully understand and agree with that. Uh, But what needs to be done, it has to be done correctly. And and H.R. 2, as you point out, is that bill. Uh, You know, again, it's an uphill climb on the Senate. Um, There may be a scenario where the House could pass, uh, uh, you know, a a, a smaller supplemental spending package with H.R. 2. Uh, But but the the two chambers are so divided on this question, uh, I I, I am I'm not hopeful that there is an adequate resolution.
2: Mm. But these are representatives of the people and we certainly can make our voices heard. And there's an election coming up as well. So keep this in mind. Ryan Walker, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me
2: again. Ryan Walker is executive vice president of Heritage Action, talking about the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It is up to the Senate to actually convict him. And that does not seem likely at this point. We'll continue to follow the story. If you're listening in Seattle, we are out of time. Hope you have a great night and will join us here again tomorrow at four in Portland. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland only portion of the Georgine Rice show. Well, Tony Bobulinski claims that Joe Biden was aware of Hunter Biden's business dealings and was himself involved. The former Biden business associate uh, Bobulinski or Bobulinski, he claimed that Joe Biden was at the center of the Biden family's shady overseas business dealings in his testimony before Congress yesterday, the testifying behind closed doors before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. He argued in his opening statement that the president was not only only aware of the influence peddling operation being conducted by his son, Hunter, and his brother, James, while he was vice president, but that he actively enabled the lucrative scheme. Benny Johnson weighing in saying opening statements of Hunter Biden's former business associate says Joe Biden enabled his son to sell access to the United States most dangerous adversaries, including China, Russia and more. Well, House conservatives are pushing against a reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, unless significant reforms are made to rein in the capabilities of the federal government to collect data from U.S. citizens inadvertently. Well, the House is set to consider a bill that would reauthorize Section 702 of FISA, a surveillance law that allows the government to collect communications from foreigners who are abro- abor- abroad, rather, as a way to investigate possible threats to national security. Well, the federal statute has come under scrutiny because of its ability to sweep in communications from Americans who are in contact with foreigners, prompting some lawmakers to push for a complete overhaul. Representative Andy Biggs. The FBI, DEA, DHS, Secret Service, Department of Defense and the IRS have all reportedly bought access to Fourth Amendment protected data. They are weaponizing a spying authority on the American people, he says. Meanwhile, Representative Barry Moore says in 2021 alone, the FBI used FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, nearly 300,000 times to spy on american citizens including president trump without a warrant we must reform fisa and require the fbi to get a warrant to protect americans in other news a california democrat suggests a uh, 50 million dollar wa- rather 50 million a 50 dollar minimum wage during a debate $50 minimum wage. I need to get a job at McDonald's. Representative Barbara Lee said during a debate this week for one of California's U.S. Senate seats that it makes sense to raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour. Lee, whose proposal means that minimum wage workers would make about $100,000 a year, made the remarks while on stage Monday night facing off against Representatives Adam Schiff, the Democrat from California, and Katie Porter, from, also a Democrat from California, and Republican Steve Garvey. Senate uh, candidate Barbara Lee has a solution to inflation and high prices. Raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour. I'll never go to McDonald's again, but I may get a job there. They're paying $50 an hour. Russia is apparently targeting Estonia's prime minister for removing Soviet era monuments in the region. Russia wants to arrest the prime minister. Uh, and dozens of other Baltic officials for the removal of monuments to the Soviet Union soldiers in their respective countries. Now, these people are responsible for decisions that are actually tantamount to desecration of historical memory. That's what the Kremlin spokesperson said. Well, the uh, prime minister announced last year that Estonian uh, officials would have Soviet monuments removed from public spaces, as the Baltic states or country as well as Latvia and Lithuania. All three countries were occupied by the Soviet Union after World War II. They are now independent. Well, Russia's Interior Ministry unveiled the indictment on the same day that Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service released an annual report that forecast Moscow's aspiration to achieve military dominance in the Baltic Sea region through a military buildup designed to prepare for a potential war with NATO. Kalas dismissed uh, Moscow's familiar scare tactic. That's the prime minister, but... Some are taking it a bit more seriously. Well, the report indicates higher consumer price index than predicted. Uh, Despite President Biden's uh, fantasy land insistence that inflation is down and his administration's claims that prices are falling, the consumer price index uh, print for January 2024 showed that not only is inflation still moving up, it's accelerating faster than economists had predicted. Again, the main driver of January's hotter than expected inflation was a common culprit, the cost of shelter that metric alone accounted for more than two-thirds of January's inflation. The consumer price index, a broad based measure of the prices shoppers face for goods and services across the economy increased 0.3% for the month. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported on a 12 month basis that came out at about 3.1% down from 3.4% in December. The MAGA war room, uh CNBC says, if you look at the headline actual index for CPI, it's 308.417, which means that if you go back to 1913, we've never had this index higher than it is right now. Well, there you have it. Well, New York City Democrats are looking to ban laundry detergent pods. New York City, uh, I don't use them, by the way, New York City could soon ban Tide Pods and other laundry detergent packets under the latest green push from lawmakers. The Pods Are Plastic bill introduced by city councilmen uh, would make it illegal to sell any pods and laundry sheets if they're uh, made of polyvinyl alcohol. Uh, Fines for selling the pods would start at about $400, double for a second violation and top off at $1,200 dollars for flouting the rules more than twice if the bill becomes law. The bill would also require education and outreach to businesses on the ban for the first year. The law wouldn't take effect until January of 26, if passed. Well, the CIA started the Russia collusion hoax with last year's release of the uh, Durham report. There were still some missing elements in the criminal scheme and an utter lack of accountability for the Obama administration officials who carried it out. We're still not convinced that accountability, criminal or historical, will ever come to those responsible. But new information unearthed uh, by a trio of intrepid journalists does shed some new and disturbing light on the hoax, according to new reporting based on multiple credible. Sources. That's in quote. Independent journalists Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, and Alex Gutentag. All this uh, say the CIA targeted 26 Trump associates for foreign spy agencies to reverse target and bump, that is, to actively contact these individuals and then manipulate them. Well, these Trump team members thus became targets of our own intelligence community for collection and misinformation. Schellenberger says there's also a binder of highly classified information detailing the whole operation. And those materials have gone Missing Schellenberger suggests that the uh, deep state's desperate search for this uh, binder may have been what triggered the FBI's July 2022 raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Looking back, what we uh, what was written shortly after that unprecedented raid now sounds spot on. What we're hearing now is still speculation. But now we're told that the feds were worried that Trump might weaponize certain materials he'd been collecting in order to exonerate himself, perhaps during the upcoming 2024 presidential campaign. Oh, the intrigue. Well, the GOP lost the House seat vacated by uh, George Santos vacated. That's one way of putting it. White male Democrat beats black female Republican. That's the headline. Well, that was the result of yesterday's special election in New York's third congressional district. But it wasn't unexpected, given that uh, district's solidly Democrat composition. Still, it was telling that nearly the entire left media enterprise located this largely anticipated story above and ahead of yesterday's far more historic story of Homeland Securities, Alejandro Mayorkas impeachment. Regardless of media bias, the GOP loss makes it uh, fingertip... Uh, A hold on the House, even more tenuous Democrat uh, Tom Susie, the district's former congressman, beat Republican Maisie Phillips 54 to 46 percent in the uh, in the race to fill the seat vacated by Republican George Santos, the fabulist who was expelled by his House colleagues in December. This is a Long Island district that Santos had won in 2022 midterm a surprise, but that Joe Biden had carried by eight points in 2020. In addition, Susie, 61, had held the seat for three terms before Santos, before leaving it for an unsuccessful bid for governor, said National Republican Congressional Campaign Chairman Richard Hudson. This was an uphill battle. Joe Biden won this district by eight points. Democrats outspent Republicans two to one, and Democrat opponents spent decades representing these New Yorkers. Yet it was still a dogfight. Republicans still have multiple paths." to grow the majority in d- November. This was a six-week campaign. He'll only hold the seat for two years, and some are suggesting that advantage will evaporate or at least lessen in the next run for that, uh, that seat. He is an incumbent, however, so time will tell. A Washington Post fact-checker dodged Biden's gun violence claim. Once again, the Post fact-checker had been caught in a... Um, calisthenic effort to hide the truth about gun-related deaths among children and thereby protect his colleagues and their gun-grabbing agenda. As Glenn Kessler would have us believe, gun violence is the number one cause of death for children. But it just isn't so, not unless you include gang-banging adult teens who simply aren't children, By any reasonable definition. Well, as Hot Air's John Sexton wrote, you can arrive at this, uh, the talking point the White House seemed to prefer by, A, including adults as children and failing to mention that, and B, leaving out people killed in car accidents beyond traffic crashes. Those would seem to be essential details, seems to me. No, at least not according to Kessler, whose uh, bold conclusion is as follows. We will leave this unrated. Well, Uh, As Sexton sums it up, ultimately, Kessler doesn't give this uh, misleading claim a rating because uh, he does say it would be better for White House officials to refer to children and teens when citing these reports. Well, yes, it would. It would also be nice if fact checkers and reporters would point out how carefully massaged the details behind these claims are when the claims are made instead of waiting uh, most of a year to explain it. We're going to take a break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's more condemning evidence of that's emerged surrounding Hunter Biden's the purchase of firearms, which was illegal. Both images and text messages from his iPhone show that just days prior to his purchasing of a gun in October of 28, he was purchasing illicit drugs. According to the Department of Justice filing, the defendant took photos of crack cocaine and drug paraphernalia on his phone also prior to his gun Purchased, The defendant routinely sent messages about purchasing the drugs. It further notes that Hunter massaged. Well, I won't go into all of that. Hunter admitted to his then girlfriend that he was an addict. This evidence proves that Hunter lied when filling out the background check to purchase the firearm. Usually Joe Biden wants to um, uh, crack down on such crimes, but apparently this would be the exception. Well, as Israel continues its war against Hamas in Gaza, it continues to uncover the sophisticated network of tunnels the terrorist organization developed over the years. Well, one such command tunnel the IDF followed led directly under the United Nations Relief and Works Agency or UNRWA headquarters in Gaza figure. Well, this space under UNRWA that the tunnel led to contained a full-scale Hamas command center with data servers that were powered by the UNRWA headquarters directly above it. Furthermore, IDF noted, large quantities of weapons were found inside the rooms of the building, including rifles, ammunition, grenades, and explosives. Intelligence and documents discovered in the offices of UNRWA officials confirmed that the offices had in fact also been used by Hamas terrorists. Predictably, UNRWA UNRWA officials played dumb, claiming that they had left the building five days after the war started and were unable to confirm or otherwise comment on what the IDF uncovered. Now, the infrastructure that they uncovered would have been there far longer than the few days uh, since the war had begun. Well, the Dow tumbled 500 points, posting a, its worst day since March of 2023 after a hot inflation report. Lloyd Austin has been released from hospital after treatment for a bladder issue. President Biden's upcoming physical exam will not include a cognitive test. And the White House says Chuck Schumer says it's a right wing propaganda to suggest that Biden's mental acuity has declined, even though stats say most Democrats believe it has. Heartland Institute measures the effect of mail-in ballots in a 2020 uh, report detailing um, who really won the 2020 election. And an embattled U.N. official is doubling down at Harvard, saying Israel has no right to self-defense. Trans activists occupied the Iowa State House to protest legal definitions of men and women. And uh, Colorado Democrats moved to require public schools to socially transition gender-confused students. And uh, Jeff Bezos will save over $600 million in taxes by moving to Miami. Well, here in the state of Oregon, over 1,287 Oregonians submitted testimony online or in person for the rushed hearing of HJR 201. That's the statewide property tax bill for the Rules Committee hearing at the state capitol. That is 1,287 testimonies against the tax scheme. Well, thank you for... Uh, for doing that, uh, remember, they rushed this hearing with uh, short notice during a short one month session, which prevents people uh, from participating or knowing what's going on. But Oregonians were not fooled. They stepped up. They spoke their minds uh when others could not. Some of the uh, statements made by people regarding HJR House Joint Resolution 201. My children also pay property taxes, and if I wasn't able to help them, they would be homeless. Another, I am 71-year-old uh, widow. I cannot afford my property tax to go up. My electricity, water, garbage, insurance for my house have all went up. I am on fixed income. I can barely afford food. Another, Oregon government needs to reduce its appetite for taxes and start paying attention to results. And And finally, our state um, already has folks leaving in droves because of the failed policies of the past 30 plus years. If you want to do something about our state budget, do a real audit and you will find where all the wasted money is. Oh, and one more I'll mention. I am a disabled veteran, Agent Orange victim, and my wife is receiving disability for long-term illness. We are barely able to meet our current obligations. We are now at the point to pay for any additional taxes. We will have to cut back on the basics, food, heat, and electricity, plus the fuel needed to travel 100 miles round trip to many of our medical appointments. This new proposed property tax would put us in a very difficult financial spot. Uh, Again, Oregonians speaking up and saying no. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg visited the interstate bridge um, Tuesday morning, joining Oregon Governor Tina Kotek and Washington Governor Jay Inslee in Vancouver to talk about the plan to replace the aging freeway crossing. This is a big deal. I mean, this bridge is about to turn 107 years old, Buttigieg said, adding that it clearly needs to be replaced. One hundred and seven years old. Well the estimated six billion dollar replacement project has been in the works for years, and the effort recently got a big boost in the form of a federal grant for six hundred million dollars. Okay, it's gonna cost six hundred billion, federal grant six hundred million to help rebuild the bridge. The current bridge doesn't meet modern freeway standards and there are concerns about how it would hold up during a major earthquake. We know there is some seismic risk everywhere in the Northwest, Inslee said, the governor of Washington, so it's imperative to get this job done. Well, the proposed replacement bridge will look distinctly different from the current twin span, if it's ever actually built, rising higher above the river in order to give boats space to pass underneath without including a drawbridge section, but it can only go up so high because it still needs to be low enough to avoid interfering with planes arriving and departing Portland's International Airport. So, There's the challenge. That's not an easy thing, Buttigieg admitted, so it's going to be an engineering feat. Well, the proposal also includes an extension of TriMet's Max Yellow Line across the river to Vancouver, as well as a larger bike and pedestrian path that... Uh, the one on the current bridge, in an effort to make the crossing more environmentally friendly. It's more than cars, Kotech said, the governor of Oregon. It's about people walking and biking and moving on light rail. Well, this isn't the first time that state leaders in Washington and Oregon have tried to replace the bridge. It's been well talked about as long as I can remember. More than a decade ago, another project also got years into the planning process, but abruptly collapsed in 2013 after the Washington legislature missed a key deadline to uh, to line up a $450 million for the project. Well, the cost has skyrocketed since then and will continue to go up in the days ahead. Well, this time around, Washington and Oregon have collectively put in about $200 million already and have each pledged another $1 billion toward the replacement, with tolling expected to bring in another $1.2 billion. Washington state leaders are optimistic that the current iteration of the project will come to fruition. Others of us aren't holding our breath. I feel we really got momentum, says inley Inslee rather. There are there's a plan on both sides of the river. Well the current six hundred million dollar grant came from the federal mega grant program, but the project will still need about another two billion dollars in federal funding for completion. And the project team is looking to uh two other big federal programs to supply those dollars. The Federal Highway Administration's Bridge Investment Program and the Federal Transit Administration's Capital Investment Grants New Starts Program. Well, we, um, we're we ready to go, Kotex said. We need everything uh, you can give us. We'll see what they give us and whether or not we're actually... Ready to go. Well, on this day in history, 1876, inventors Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray, they apply separately for patents related to the telephone. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled that Bell was the rightful inventor. 1920, the League of Women's voters, Women Voters is founded by Carrie Chapman Catt. In Chicago, during the convention of the National American Women Suffrage Association. 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seven members and associates of Chicago's North Side gang are gunned down in a hail of bullets resembling the firing squad. Al Capone is widely believed to have ordered the hit, but is never officially tied to the killings. 1948, on this day in history, NASCAR holds its first race for modified stock cars on a 3.2-mile course in Daytona Beach, Florida. 1954, um, Senator John F. Kennedy, the Democrat from Massachusetts, appears on Meet the Press for the first time. 1962, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy gives a tour of the White House shown on television with three out of four Americans watching. 1967 Aretha Franklin records her f- cover of Otis Redding's respect at, a- at Atlanta records in New York City 1989 Ayatollah Khomeini the first supreme leader of Iran issues a death sentence on British writer Salman Rushdie for his authorship of the book Satanic Verses 2005 a terrorist bomb in West Beirut kills nine including former Lebanese prime minister Rafik Harari in an apparent assassination attempt. 2014, a federal judge in Virginia overturned the state's ban on gay marriage, This decision marks the first time that same-sex marriage ban had been overturned in a southern state. 2018, a gunman identified as a former student opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School near Fort Lauderdale, Florida, killing 17 people in the nation's deadliest school shooting since the attack in Newtown, Connecticut, more than five years earlier. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, William Barr is sworn in for his second stint as U.S. Attorney General. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Dave King for engineering,
1: and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.